0: The doctrine of the atonement is foundational to Christian theology, and is a doctrine that stands at the center of the gospel. And yet it's also a doctrine that's often misunderstood, debated, and even disparaged. What does it really mean to say that Jesus atoned for our sins on the cross? What are the different ways that Christians have understood the atonement throughout the centuries, and how could a just God allow an innocent man to pay for the sins of the guilty? Today, I'm sitting down with Jeremy Treat to talk about why this doctrine is so important for all Christians, how it's often misunderstood by believers and unbelievers alike, and the impact that it should make on our day-to-day lives as followers of Christ. Jeremy Treat is a pastor for preaching and vision at Reality LA, a church in Los Angeles, California. He's also an adjunct professor of theology at Biola University, and is the author of The Atonement, An Introduction, which is part of Crossway's short studies in systematic theology series. Let's get started. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway podcast.
1: So good to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So for the Christian, the atonement, the message of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for our salvation, it stands at the heart of our faith, of what we believe. And we're going to dig into that a little bit today in our conversation, what the atonement is, why it matters for us as Christians. But for many unbelievers, the doctrine of the atonement is probably viewed as bizarre at best, and perhaps even immoral at worst. Uh, And yet you argue in this new book that you've written for Crossway that uh, our secular culture actually evidences a certain longing for atonement in maybe ways that, Uh, us Christians would find surprising or counterintuitive, so I wonder if you could unpack what do you mean by that? What is that longing that you see uh, among non-Christians?
1: Yeah, I think everyone acknowledges that something is wrong with the world. Everyone feels guilt for things that they've done. People feel shame for things that have been done to them. And then we long to be made pure, to be set free, for things to be put right. And so everyone has this longing and that longing presses through in different ways. Um, so you, I mean, you shared in headlines of victims seek atonement for wrongdoing shared conversations of how can I atone for what I've done? And uh, we're longing for this. And so for Christians, the good news is that's possible through Jesus Christ and that our sins can be atoned for all that's, that our sin has made wrong can be set right we can be forgiven we can be set free we can be made new and that not only applies to us individually but it can happen in a communal level and even a corporate level ultimately a cosmic level and so that's where i think it's important to give people even language for what we're longing for and of course i think to do that we we have to talk about sin we have to talk about there is a problem And Christians are sometimes, you know, we want to proclaim the good news of what God has done for us in his son through grace, but we also have to be honest about the condition that we're in and the condition of our hearts, of our need for grace. I think there's something there in our culture today of like the curtain has been pulled back so much on the injustice in the world and the wickedness and the evil And to be able to acknowledge that for what it is, and then also recognize how it plays out in our own hearts, but then to say, there's good news. God has done something about this.
0: Mm. Yeah, you lead a church in Los Angeles, uh, which is not exactly the place that many of us would would think of when it comes to being open and friendly towards Orthodox Christianity and a a view of the Bible that you would espouse in your church. And as you've ministered in that kind of highly secular, highly materialistic context, I think uh, sometimes maybe our assumption from other parts of the country is that there just wouldn't be a, a, a wide acknowledgement of the reality of sin. There wouldn't necessarily be this sense of guilt or shame that people have, uh, the things in their lives that they've done wrong or something. So I guess how is that maybe, is that not what you've seen? Is that kind of a caricature of a, a secular context like L.A.? That you think is is maybe doesn't represent what's the reality.
1: Yeah, I think guilt and shame are universals. And you cannot believe in God and maybe not feel you might not feel like a, a guilt towards God, like a debt to God or something like that. But man, the people that I want, that I talk to who don't know Jesus in my city, there's so much shame. There's so much guilt. There's so much regret. There's so much pain. Right? I mean, it's just and People in L.A., they wear it on their sleeves more. It's mm. more open. The brokenness is just right out in front of you. So it certainly gets expressed in different ways. People are, you know, you don't have Martin Luther's running around Los Angeles saying, how can I be righteous before a holy God? But they're saying, how can I deal with this pain that I feel and mm. this shame and this, that, what I what I see in the, the weight of the world of all the injustice around me? And so one thing that's interesting about L.A., though, is that I think when a lot of people think of secularism, they think of New York's and London's where, you, you know, you don't have these over beliefs in God. But I would say Los Angeles is hyper religious. Huh. And in, in a lot of ways, I think it's more of the future of urbanism because L.A. is such a global city. And with that comes the religions from all over the world and all these different ethnic groups. And so what's fascinating for me in Los Angeles is that the idea of like believing in somebody who was, was tortured on a cross and died. And that's our hope. It, it seems really weird. You know, he's going to come back on a horse with a sword out. of It seems really weird. Right. But man, like the spirituality in LA is all over the path. People are doing ayahuasca and praying to the stars and buying crystals. And like, it's all weird. Like. I think there's there's <laughs> this, the longing for something transcendent is so strong huh. that it breaks through in different ways. And I feel like in my context, I just, I get to see that really in, in really direct ways with all kinds of uh, witchcraft and all these cults and like, it's just all over. So it's a, in that like hyper spiritual context. In some ways, it's easier, I think, honestly, to talk about the atonement and what God has done for us in Christ, because there is more of an openness hmm. to spiritual solutions, so to speak, whereas in a place like New York or London, somebody might just look down and say, I'm not, I'm not even willing to have that conversation. But here, I, I do think there's a more openness and a, a genuine like, pluralism of spirituality.
0: Yeah, beyond just that that maybe more open disposition, do you see a direct line between that longing for atonement that we all have but in even those kind of hyper spiritual new age type of spirituality that you see in LA, is there a direct line between those two where that's you would say that those kinds of practices, those beliefs are directly evidencing this kind of desire to be made right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think atonement's only only a part of it, right? I mean, when I look at the spiritualities in L.A., I want to think, think of it through a lens of like creation, fall, redemption, new creation. I mean, there's a lot of good that I can see in non-Christians in our city uh, because they're made in the image of God. And I believe in God's common grace. The fall affects everyone. But then when you get to that remedy, um, that's where the, the doctrine of atonement really comes in. And I think there's just something beautiful to sacrifice and love being at the heart of that remedy. There's And what's so interesting about that is it's it's the opposite of the I choose me, I'm going to be true to myself and say no to everything else. It's literally the opposite of that. It's I'm going to sacrifice myself for the good of somebody else. And so it's, you know, this is Jesus talking about what does it profit a man if he gains the world but loses his soul? And people are trying to gain the world and they're losing their soul, their soul in the process. And Jesus is the one who gave it all uh, that He might redeem all. And so for us, then that yeah, that faith is recognizing that and trusting in Christ. But it's it's what people are longing for, but it comes about through a different means. It's actually not in prioritizing ourselves and seeking ourselves first and all of that, but laying ourselves down and trusting in Christ.
0: Hmm. It made me go to the other end of the spectrum. So the kind of conservative Christian evangelical world where we, we, we are very familiar with the cross. You write in your book about the tendency that we have to domesticate the atonement to make it so yeah. familiar and tame. You say, whether placed on a calendar in a Christian bookstore, tattooed on an arm or elevated above a city skyline, we have tamed the cross and turned it into a decorative pleasantry. So how would you say that our familiarity with the cross as Christians, as evangelicals, has impacted our understanding of it?
1: Yeah, I think it's massive. When we domesticate the cross and kind of relegate it to this pleasant symbol, we start to miss out on the depth of our sin and on the glory of what Christ has really accomplished. And so... I feel like I have to remind people all the time that people in the first century would would be disgusted by a symbol of a cross. Crucifixion was invented was invented by the Persians, perfected by the Romans, and it was a form of capital punishment. It's, it was literally invented to slowly torture the person um, as they died. I mean, if they wanted to just kill someone, they could decapitate them, right? Like they could burn them at the stake. They had forms of death or of, or of killing that would do that but the cross was meant to physically torture someone and even more important to what western people often miss when they read the gospels is to publicly shame them and so it's not like jesus was the only one who was crucified the romans crucified tens of thousands of people hmm. um and they would do it on roadways and you would have uh, vultures coming in and picking at the bodies it, the smell would be horrible. The sight would be horrible. Everything about it was grotesque. And when you understand that, then you start to get the sense of, like, wow, like Jesus not only took my place and bore this physical pain, but I mean, the, the Gospels don't even talk about the physical pain. The emphasis on the Gospels is Jesus bearing our shame and humiliation in our place. So when you start to understand how, how brutal and ugly crucifixion was, it's then that you start to recognize how glorious it is that Jesus did that for us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the book you connect the horror of the cross with the glory of the cross. And that's something I think that sometimes we can—we we want to jump right to the glory of the cross. As Christians, we kind of have our theology right. We know why it's so important uh, in the abstract— but maybe we we tend to not want to linger on the horror of it.
1: Yeah, I mean and if you just think and I think that's related to sin too. Like we have to know what crucifixion was about and then we have to acknowledge our our sin because if I'm just thinking like, well, people are basically good people and then Jesus like made this nice gesture to them, right? Then it's like, okay, cool. I could I could sing about that for 30 minutes every Sunday and then live my life in a way that doesn't really affect it at all. But that's not what the cross is about, right? If our sin has separated us from God and literally brought decay into all of the earth. And then the cross is this horrific, um, brutal experience that Jesus went through. Then all of a sudden that changes everything. Like all of a sudden I'm not just like, Oh, that was nice that Jesus did that for me. It was, it was, he's changed my life. Like he went through something unimaginable so that I could be reconciled to God and be a new creation today and be a part of the work that he's doing. Yeah. I mean, it just, I think when we start to understand the cross in the biblical sense, you can't yawn over it. Mm -hmm. Not something that's like, okay, we like, we know that like, this is crazy. It's unthinkable. It's amazing. And it really does changed our lives. It's changed my life.
0: Hmm. Yeah, so throughout history, Christians have uh, proposed various theories of the atonement. That's how these are often described, theories of the atonement, of how it works, uh, what's actually happening when Jesus dies on the cross in our place. And I want to talk about a few of those in a minute, but before we get to that, you actually don't really like the language of theories when it comes to the atonement. I wonder if you could tell us why that is, and what, what would you say is a better way to talk about the atonement?
1: The standard way of having atonement conversations is by engaging with theories. And so you have these theories like the penal substitution theory, Christus Victor, moral exemplary theory. And the problem is is that these are usually presented as mutually exclusive theories, as if Jesus either bore the wrath of God or defeated the devil or provided an example of love for us. And so the obvious problem with that is you read the scriptures and we shouldn't have to choose between truths, right? Like Jesus did all of those things and many more. And so the way that the atonement theology has developed in conversation becomes incredibly reductive to where you reduce the glory of the cross to one aspect of the cross. Hmm. And so what I'm what I'm trying to do is approach it in a different way saying we don't have to approach this by the theories and honestly nobody even talked about theories of the atonement until the mid 1800s that was something that that came out of an enlightenment way of thinking in, in the university system of like borrowing languages from, language from other fields and talking about well here's a theory this kind of a mutually exclusive explanation of the cross that explains everything about it through this one dimension. And so I just think that that's unhelpful. I think contemporary theology went the wrong direction with that. And so what I do in my book is I talk about dimensions of the cross and we can talk about how Jesus forgave our sins and was victorious over the devil and adopted us into the family of God, and bore our shame, and on and on, you know, set us free from the slavery of sin. I mean, I cover 20 dimensions of the atonement in the book, and there's, there's many more. And so I think it's a better way of approaching it, of saying, let's try and understand the fullness of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And yes, it's the forgiveness of our sins, that's at the heart of it, but it's much more to that. And then also understanding how those things relate to one another. So we're not just kind of picking and choosing. I like this or I like that. But no, here's a glorious, multidimensional accomplishment that uh, we're going to be rejoicing over for all of eternity. Hmm.
0: So in evangelical circles, probably especially among maybe more Reformed types penal substitution uh, is perhaps the primary lens or dimension through which we tend to view the atonement and that maybe then this relates to what you were saying about trying to hold together all of these dimensions some christians would criticize many protestants for what they would call to be an overemphasis on penal substitution that that sometimes certain conservative christians are reductive in making that the sum of what god did on the cross how would you respond to that kind of a critique
1: I mean, I think it's often, I think it's often a really fair critique. I do think that a lot of more conservative Christians, and reformed Christians have almost exclusively focused on penal substitution. And so, you know, an example is like when Gustav Alain came on the scene and wrote Christus Victor, he's recognizing a gap in a lot of theology and he was he was right to do so. I think that he went about it in a lot of wrong ways. That's another conversation. But if you take like in our culture, well, if you have like an emphasis on penal substitution, plus we're living in this enlightenment world that uh, doesn't really take seriously the spiritual realm, and you know we're modern people. We don't we don't believe in angels and demons anymore and all that kind of stuff. You can look back at that and see a lot of a lot of reformed Christians um, and Christians in general. Just ignored like the the victory over the demonic, uh, which is clearly a key part of what Jesus came to accomplish. I mean, he says that in First John that he came to destroy the works of the devil, and you have that clearly in Colossians 2, of what Jesus is accomplishing on the cross, this triumph over the enemy, disarming him, putting him to public shame. So I definitely think that there's been. I don't know if I'd say overemphasis because I I don't I don't know if you can overemphasize something so important of what penal substitution points to. But but it's been to the neglect Hmm. or the exclusion of a lot of other dimensions that are just beautiful and glorious and that we really need.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Then on the other side of the spectrum, though, you have others, even some Christians, uh, some seemingly evangelical Christians who would kind of accuse those who affirm penal substitution of of having a pretty deficient or even immoral view of God. I I came across a tweet online from one such person, a pastor, in fact, and he writes, Penal substitutionary atonement, which says that God had to kill something, so he chose Jesus, not you, but he's still angry with you for sinning. That idea has pushed more people away from God than any other doctrine. It makes God a petty tyrant, which others then model. How would you respond to a critique like that against this dimension of the atonement as you see it?
1: I think that there are a lot of really unhelpful and unhealthy views of penal substitution out there. And those do, those need to be corrected. So most of the critiques that I hear of penal substitution are critiquing popular versions of it that are really bad. I mean, the train conductor. Illustration is an example of that. I mean, I'll, I can come back to that in a second, but the the critiques that I hear of penal substitution, they don't. They're not valid criticisms of John Stott or J.I. Packer or any of these people who are thinking in deeply Trinitarian ways, non-reductive ways.
0: So they're I mean, they caricatures. Put, well, You'd say they're straw yeah. men.
1: Well, the, I, I wouldn't say they're totally straw men because the, I think that there are, there is a lot of popular level preaching that falls into that, hmm. that that kind of presents God as this, like, God is angry and Jesus is loving and he's got to kill him in order for you to go to heaven. Um, and so, you know, like the, I mentioned the train conductor, like, I remember as a kid hearing this story, right? Like, there's the father, he's a train conductor, he looks down, his kid's playing in the tracks. But then the train is coming, and so the father has this this dilemma of do I either, you know, sacrifice my son by switching the tracks and saving all the people on the train, or do I let the train go off and I save my son? Of course, what he does is he sacrifices his son to save all the people. That's used as an illustration for the cross. Now there's elements of truth in that. It's it's sacrifice. But the problem is, is you have You have the son is just blindsided. Like he's not choosing, he's not offering his life. It's not father and son working together. The son's playing and the next thing you know, like you're getting crushed by the tracks. And that's a horrible illustration for understanding what happens at the cross because the cross is a triune work through and through. Father, son, and Holy Spirit all working together for the purpose of atoning for sins and a renewal of the heavens and the earth. And when you approach it like that, then it doesn't fall prey to those caricatures of pitting father against, an angry father against a loving son. No, the, the father's angry, but the son gets angry too. They're, they're both united against sin and they're both loving as well. So we need a lot more nuance in that. And, you know, I unpack that in the book of saying, okay, how do we think about the Trinity? How does that shape the cross? But most of those critiques, they really are critiques of caricatures. But then again, I want to follow up and say we need some of those, because unfortunately I think there are a lot of crude, unbiblical versions of penal substitution out there.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. We can't really talk about the atonement without talking about the wrath of God, and that kind of especially directly connects to penal substitution. But you say something really interesting about the wrath of God in your book. You write, We must understand that wrath is not an attribute of God. God is love. God is holy. God is just. God is not wrath. And I can just imagine right now, for some listeners hearing those words, maybe alarm bells are going off in their minds and they're thinking, that sounds like something a quote unquote progressive Christian might say, someone who doesn't really want to believe in the wrath of God. So, what are you getting at when you say that wrath is not an attribute of God?
1: If people read my book, they'll see very clearly that I believe that the wrath of God is a very real, important biblical theme. And if you lose that, um, then you lose so much of what God is doing in the cross. So I want to acknowledge that. But saying that wrath is not an attribute of God is really important because uh, God is holy and God is loving. Yeah, so God is love. God is holy. God is just. But God's wrath is the rightful expression of his holy love in the face of sin and evil. So when we think about God before the creation of the world, we can say God is love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect communion with one another. But we wouldn't say God is wrath. Wrath is God's holy, loving response to sin. Hmm. And so that doesn't diminish the wrath of God. I think it just helps us understand it right in the way that it flows from God's character as a holy, loving God.
0: Hmm. And that helps to maybe help us color a little bit better, too, and push back against the caricatures of penal substitution, where it isn't this, fundamentally, isn't an expression of anger, it's an expression of God's love that, again, is coming into contact with the sin of the world.
1: Yeah, the pr- the problem is, is that we pin love and anger against, right? Hmm. And we think, well, if God is loving, then how could he be angry? But look, if, if you're a parent, you know that that's a false dichotomy right? Because I love my kids. And sometimes the things that they do make me angry because I love them, right? Now, we need to understand that anger even arises. Yeah, anger arises because of love. If somebody like comes after my children trying to hurt them, I'm going to get angry because I love them. If I didn't get angry, you would rightfully question whether I actually love them or not. Now, the hard part about that, even when I start to make a comparison, Comparing like God's anger to our anger is—it's hard for us to imagine God's perfect, loving wrath because we've never seen someone who's angry who has a purely righteous anger. Hmm. Our anger, at some level, taps into selfishness and a lack of self-control, and all of those kind of things. And so, it's hard for us to imagine a perfectly pure, righteous, loving, just anger. But that's exactly what God has. His anger is never irritability. It's never an explosion, like he can't contain himself. I mean, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithful. Mm. So we just need to understand God's character in the right way as we talk about the cross.
0: Yeah. yeah. When we think and talk about the atonement, We often, as we have in this conversation so far, we think primarily in terms of humanity's broken relationship with God, our own sin problem and the effect that it has on us. But you want us to, in some ways, broaden our perspective on the atonement, on the impact of the atonement to encompass all of creation, even. I wonder if you could just help us understand what impact should we be seeing there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think God reconciling sinners to himself is at the heart of it. Uh, but, and that's that's the traditional conversation about the atonement, is how does God reconcile sinners to himself? Well, I think, that's, I think that's correct, but it's incomplete, because the vision in Scripture is even broader than that. And so when you think about, like, Colossians 1, it's, it's talking about this reconciliation, not only of God and sinners, but of heaven and earth. So by the blood of the cross, God bringing together heaven and earth. So the way I talk about it in the book is that, Atonement is about the at one of God and sinners, He's taking two who are alienated and making them at-one, but it's also about the at one of heaven and earth. The way that God reconciles us to Himself comes within this broader story of God uniting heaven and earth in Christ. Hmm. And so we need to recognize how Christ's atoning work comes to us, but it also goes through us, and the vision is for all of creation.
0: When you say that, is there a sense in which we should understand Christ's atoning work, like the sacrifice that he paid on our behalf? Is that also, in a sense, on behalf of the world? Should we understand that the world itself is in some way culpable and guilty or tarnished and Christ is having to purchase uh, redemption for the world? Or is, it, is the impact on the world just kind of flowing out of our own redemption?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. It's definitely different kinds of categories, right? I can't hold the land accountable for sin, like God holds me accountable for sin, right? I think Romans 8 is probably the the place to go to think through that question, is that mm. the creation is in bondage because of the sin of humanity. It was our sin against God, you think of this uh, vertical rebellion against God that led to this then horizontal shattering of shalom goodness of God's creation. And so just as the created world is in decay because of our sin, it's the the creation longs for our redemption because it's in our redemption that the overflow of that is into all of creation. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think it's all wrapped up together. But when we talk about sin and moral culpability and whatnot, that's on humanity.
0: Yeah, yeah. Many of the people listening right now are undoubtedly parents, uh, parents of of small children even. And I was recently reading in the book of Exodus the story of the Passover in Exodus 12 when uh, we, we have this terrible threat looming over Egypt and God is giving instructions to the Israelites for how to prepare the sacrificial lamb and how to take the blood of the lamb and spread it over their doors. And, and then there's this incredible kind of instruction that God gives. He, he says, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? you shall say it is the sacrifice of the lord's passover for he passed over the houses of the people of israel in egypt when he struck the egyptians but spared our houses and it just kind of got me thinking about this idea of atonement and again that that lamb obviously the passover lamb was this early sign of an atonement for the sake of the the guilty how should we as christians think about teaching our children about this doctrine i think for some it can probably feel a little bit overwhelming a little bit intense to try to explain to go beyond just the kind of Jesus died for your sins, but to the kids will often, you know, all of us as parents know this, they start to ask tough questions that maybe we're we're pretty quick to want to gloss over. Uh, how, how would you recommend or give advice to Christians who want to help their children understand and appreciate the seriousness of this, but maybe not scare them or give them a bad view of God in all of this?
1: Yeah, I think the way you're talking about it with Exodus is honestly where I would start is teaching them to see the Bible as a grand story that culminates in Christ and showing how all of that points to him, right? If you if I try and sit my eight-year-old down and, uh, and try and talk systematic theology with her, right, then it's going to be harder for her to track with me. But if I sit down with her and I say, hey, let, let me tell you a story, right? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about God's people being in slavery and what God did and then be able to say how That's pointing forward to us, and here's the slave, the kind of slavery that we experience in our lives today. So, but I I think it's important with kids to really have a holistic approach with this. And I like to use more like academic categories. I I want to give my kid like biblical theology, systematic theology, and practical theology, right? So, what I mean by that is, and I even think of this kind of as as the kids grow up a little bit is. Like early on, I just want them, I want them knowing the story of Scripture. I just want, I want to read the Jesus storybook Bible to them over and over again and then move towards Scripture itself. And they, they know the stories, but they know how it fits together as one story culminating in Christ. And I, I think that's so important. I think a lot of people have the wrong view of the cross because they have a truncated story. All they have is you're a sinner and Jesus is a savior. And if that's all you've got, then why does creation matter? Why does community matter? Uh, Why does justice matter? Like, none of that fits. But if you're you're going creation, fall, redemption, new creation, then, man, they're going to have the right framework. So I would start with story. But then I do think, especially in our world today, we need to talk with our kids about particular beliefs. What do we believe about what it means to be human, right? And that seems like such a vague, generic question, but what does it mean to be male and female? What does it mean? what is the purpose of our lives? Like, do we create our own purpose or are we created with purpose? And so you get into that. If you're having these like more topical conversations with kids and I, I want my kids to understand sin and I, for them growing up in the church and we have, we are blessed in so many ways in our lives. Like I don't want them to have a sense of entitlement. And I think, to like, we talked about earlier to appreciate God's grace, you have to be able to recognize your own sin. So, I think like walking through some of like key topics like that, but then I also just think practically that the kids my, I, I want my kids to be able to experience a community that's genuinely shaped by the atonement. That we're this cross shaped community where there's a seat at the table for anyone and everyone. And they're seeing that play out. So when they when they go back and they read Ephesians two someday, and it talks about the dividing wall of hostility being broken down through the death of Christ, they could say, "Oh yeah, that's like that makes sense." Because in our church we have all these people from different ethnicities, and yet we're one in Christ. And I don't see that happening in the world. And so that's that's because of what Jesus did. So ha- I I want to approach the topic with my kids in a really holistic way of, of helping them understand the story, understand key beliefs of what we have, and then how it really plays out.
0: Mm. And that's such great advice for all of us, adults included kind of going back to what we said earlier, how we can domesticate the cross. We can in so many ways, narrow it down into this little thing that is a little individualized, personalized, small thing that, that can honestly sometimes be boring for us. It can feel like a stale topic to talk about, especially if we've been raised in the church. So I wonder if you could just personally reflect for a minute, how do you, uh, as a pastor, as someone who actually did a PhD studying the atonement, but how do you keep this doctrine from becoming stale and cold for your own heart and your own life? Are there is there practical advice you would offer to listeners who who sometimes worry that, yeah, this just feels like kind of old hat to me?
1: Yeah, that's good. I, I think one the first thing that comes to my mind is when you understand the fullness of what Christ accomplished on the cross, then it's infinitely rich. It's never ending resources. So and if, what I mean by that is if you only understand the cross, say, in terms of justification, which is amazing and glorious, but let's say that's like the only angle that you take with it. Then I could see how maybe over time it feels like, okay, like I kind of know that, right? But if if you move from that and say, okay, but the cross is also participating in God and a renewal of heaven and earth, and it deals with my shame, and it deals with my blindness, uh, like spiritual blindness, and it deals with my guilt, like all these different aspects of it, then at that point, it comes alive so much more. Mm. And so even in the book, when I walk through these 20 dimensions, I then talk about how it's a remedy for every ailment. So if I'm feeling attacked, like spiritual attack, then it's not, well, Well, if I go to the cross, then all I have is that Jesus forgave my sins. Well, yeah, Jesus forgave my sins. That's great and glorious. But when I'm being attacked by the demonic, I need the truth that Christ conquered them on the cross. That hmm. my, I'm only facing a defeated enemy. That's powerful when I'm wallowing in shame, I don't need to be reminded of certain aspects of the cross, but I can be reminded that Jesus bore my shame. That's beautiful. So that's why I think the more we understand of the fullness, the more we're just constantly amazed at what God has done for us. The other thing I would say that's been really impactful for me just recently in the last few months is First Corinthians talks about the cross in a way that that subverts worldly wisdom and power. And I think, especially in Los Angeles, I mean, it's a lot like Corinth. People are so status hungry and want to come across to be impressive. We want to have worldly power, worldly success, all of that, and And Paul says to the church in Corinth, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And then he calls the church in 2 Corinthians to embrace weakness as a way of experiencing God's strength. And so for me, when I think about, all right, I'm following crucified and resurrected Christ. And so I don't need to try and be Impressive by bi- worldly standards, and I can acknowledge that that's the default mode of my flesh, and I can acknowledge that I've, I've grown up in a way that I, my my like temptation is to avoid weakness and hide weakness and pr- try to pretend like I'm strong all the time, and I think the cross has been an invitation to me, especially recently, to embrace my weakness. And to say, God's power is made perfect through weakness. You see that through the cross, and then you see that through a people who are shaped by the cross. Mm. And so that's been something that's just been really personal for me lately that the Lord's been doing in my life. And I think without the cross, that doesn't make sense. Without the cross, what does it mean that power is made perfect in weakness? Or how could I possibly say when I am weak, then I am strong, which is what Paul says in Second Corinthians 12. So that's why the cross is good news. It's good news for people who are weak. It's good news for people who are hurting. Um, and ultimately, that's all of us.
0: Mm, amen. That's so good. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us today and help all of us, uh, Christians, new Christians, old Christians alike, perhaps appreciate the cross, the atonement of our Lord and Savior Jesus a little bit better.
1: Thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure.
0: That was Jeremy Tree on the Doctrine of the Atonement. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, The Atonement, An Introduction, which is part of Crossway's short studies and systematic theology series. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off or get the ebook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.